Greetings and welcome to Alchemy. It's great to have your company again. There's been a bit of an absence. We're kind of intermittent with our shows recently and we do our best to get as many shows up as we can. Funding is low. Brand with costs and hosting and all that is extremely high. And thank you to one or two recent donators who have made this show possible and indeed the next couple that will be upcoming as well. So it's very much appreciated. As you know, we are non-profit and we intend to stay that way. So basically, we put up as much content as we can afford to do. We have a lot of listeners all over the world and it is quite expensive to host the show. So enough about that. Let's get to the context and on to this week's show. Alchemy. 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 I'm delighted to welcome back again David Matheson, author, researcher and star myth investigator. He doesn't need much introduction at this stage and of course you can check out his two previous shows. It's roughly a year since we last spoke and I'm delighted to welcome him back. David, how are you? How are things? Thank you, John. I'm great and I it's a huge honor for me to be back a third time. This is uh, uh, quite a treat and thank you to you for providing this platform and looking forward to talking about these conversations with your listening audience. Well, it's a real treat for me as well. The first time you came on, you blew my mind. The second time you came on, you blew my mind even more. And I suppose this conversation that we're about to have is an extension of the last two, but most specifically the last one, because we were talking about star myths of the world and how to interpret them the last time. And we're going to be doing the same again because volume two of the book is out, as is volume three. So I suppose to start things, or before we even start things in chronological order, how have you found the writing of the two books? These are no small achievements. These are big, big books. There's a lot of information in there. Has it taken over your life or what way has it been actually writing them? Yeah, so it's really, uh, it's almost like they write themselves, John, because, you know, any, like you said, these conversations that blew your mind, the the mind-blowing material is in these myths. It's not something that I'm... Uh, you know, I'm just pointing to this incredible treasure, this inheritance that's been given to the human race and in all these different cultures. These myths are so profound and they have so many layers that they're really bottomless, that you can keep going uh, deeper and deeper into them and never exhaust their potential. Um, so, like you mentioned, these, uh, this series that are this multi-volume series that I'm doing the books have turned out to be so thick um and yet throughout I've had to say you know I really wish I could I could probably do a multi-volume work just on the book of Genesis or I could really <laughs> yeah. do a multi-volume work just on the Bhagavad Gita or just on some of the myths of ancient India without getting to you know, 90% of them, just talking about 10% of them, you could go on and on forever. So it's, um, uh, the, just to give your readers an idea of, of what we're talking about in terms of the size of the books, this is a multi-volume series called star myths of the world and how to interpret them. And the last time we spoke, which I believe was 
last December, December yeah. of 2015. And here we are uh, more than halfway through November 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I had out uh, the first volume of the series, volume one, which was 482 pages and had 111 color photographs or not photographs, but uh, diagrams and illustrations. And then volume two came out in early 2016. That's all about the Greek myths. And that weighed in at 718 pages. And and once again, I had to apologize in a, you know, every now and then I would say, I, uh, I can only deal with so many just because of space and weight restrictions alone. Yeah. And that one's got 255 color illustrations. And a lot of those illustrations are star charts showing how these myths line up with the constellations. But also Greek pottery, a lot of ancient Greek pottery, you can see actually the outlines of that artist must have known this system or someone who taught that artist must have known this system because it's actually there. And so I include a lot of illustrations from ancient artists to support some of the assertions that I'm making about the connections to the stars. And then the most recent one also came out in 2016, This just this past fall, very recently, is Star Myths Volume 3, Star Myths of the Bible. And that one... Uh, not to be outdone by the the Greek myths got up to 718 pages. This one was 766 pages and I had to stop at 766 pages, you know? Um, so I tried to cover a representative, um, number of Bible episodes from both the old Testament and the new Testament, but just of necessity, there are, um, you know, you could write 40 volumes just on the star myths in the Bible alone. Yeah, it's amazing. Maybe you will write forty volumes by the time <laughs> by the time you get to the end of your path on this. But we'll uh, we'll backtrack a little bit and we'll talk about ancient Greece. So, volume two of Star Myths in the World and how to interpret them focuses on the mythology of ancient Greece, and there's so much stuff in there. So. I'm going to let you pick out one or two. I mean, we did it the, the last time we spoke. You picked out some uh, some very pertinent sections of the book that you felt best illustrated what was going on in the entirety of it. So I'll let you do the same and decide where we're going to start. And what we'll do is we'll give some examples of the chapters that you've got in the book because there is so much that we could talk about. We could be here for two weeks literally just talking about that book alone, but we've two of them to cover. So where are we going to start with this one, David? Well, that's a, that's a, uh, you're throwing it onto me to pick one of these, uh, myths, but absolutely. Uh, I know how you love being uh, on the spot. <laughs> no, I love, uh, the Greek myths. I, I really, uh, grew up with both the Greek myths and the Norse myths and, uh, the Greek myths, the, the Odyssey is really one of my very favorites and maybe we can touch on that. But I thought actually to, um, help out the listeners who maybe aren't as familiar, I'd just like to sketch out that the um, I, uh, the the myths being based on the stars is not just uh, so. First of all, my 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 argument is that all the myths around the world are using appear to be using the same common system of celestial metaphor, mm. and and now that's a controversial statement. There's been people in the past who have talked about the quote astro theology of the Bible and said, Hey, the Bible appears to be built on celestial metaphor, which it is. Um, but a lot of times they just focused on the stories of the Bible because those have been so 
uh, instrumental in the West, Western culture, what we call Western culture. Um, and there's a lot to tackle there, but there, I'm not the first one to say this. There's also been other authors like the authors of Hamlet's Mill who have pointed out this appears to be some kind of worldwide system. So, um, I became fascinated with that and really wanted to dig into it. And the system is actually appears to be a coherent system that has a purpose. And we can talk about what that purpose is. Um, I believe that it has to do with telling us very important and profound, indeed profound things about ourselves, our own human nature, what we're doing here in this life and about the universe that we inhabit, that it's not just a physical material universe, but it, that it has a spiritual component or this idea of a spirit world, mm. the the other realm, the invisible world, the realm of the gods, the infinite realm. And I believe that the, the myths are using the stars and the celestial realm as a metaphor for the invisible realm, because we can't see the invisible realm, but it's so important. In fact, there are some uh, cultures where this connection with the ancient wisdom was not cut off even into modern times, such as the Native Americans, there was a holy man of the Lakota, the, the Sioux, the great Sioux nation, uh, named Black Elk, who um, famously decided, hey, I'm going to pass on some of this wisdom to be published, which, you know, was a, a big step for him. And he called the other world at one point, the real world, uh, where that this world is a, sh a shadow of that other world. Mm. The real world behind this one is what he called it. So even though it's invisible, it's incredibly important to our life in this world. And there's some things that can only be learned by traveling to and making contact with that other realm. There's some problems that could only be fixed by going to that other realm. So um, I believe that this worldwide system uses the uh, celestial motions as a way of teaching us about that. It's incredibly important to our lives on a very practical level, but it uses this coherent system. And so I'm going to get back to the myth that I wanted to start with from ancient Greece uh, and talk about a little bit about the goddess Artemis. Yeah. One of my favorites, yeah. actually, I must say. Um, Fantastic. The reason right. it's one of my favorites, I just think because we're going to be talking about childbirth and the protector of women and children, essentially. I've just noticed a ramping up of the agenda to homogenize society and culture globally. And we're seeing it in Ireland and all around the world. Um, this kind of cultural Marxist neo-feminist world that we're creeping slowly towards and it's becoming quicker and quicker. And I think this ties into it because the role of Artemis is a clearly defined role and I think it's a role that we could learn a lot of lessons from because male and female, there are roles, not just in society, but within biology and within the natural order of things. And I think Artemis teaches us about that in a way that certainly our so-called protectors, politicians, etc., etc., do not at the moment. They're going the opposite way. So I'm very excited to talk about this one. Great. Well, I'm glad you... Um you know, I'm glad you pointed out exactly those aspects of the goddess Artemis, that she's the protector of childbirth. She's also a very um, strong protector, like you said, of the role or the, the 
the sacred nature of women. You know, there's the one of her most famous episodes is where she slays Acteon, this this poor, <laughs> unfortunate hunter who stumbles across uh, the goddess while she's bathing, and and he shouldn't see that. There's this, you know, there's certain boundaries that you're not supposed to cross. And even though in the myths it's not really his fault, it's uh, it it leads to his demise because she's very strict about uh, protecting the the role of women. So. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned things like uh, neo-feminism or cultural Marxism, because I would also say that there's a lot, um, you know, the impulse to challenge some of these things doesn't always, I, uh, you know, I don't want to get into controversial uh, political modern stuff, but it actually does relate back to the myths because um, there is a, a sense in which, look, patriarchy and male chauvinism has uh, cre created all kinds of um, restrictions on women and continues to do so in, uh, you know, we see it in some cultures more than others, but really even in our culture and, you know, uh, great musicians like John Lennon have challenged that, right? He, yeah. He, he was, he was a threat, not just because of, uh, he was against war, but he was also saying, hey, you know, let's, um, even you can listen to some Beatles songs now. Um, uh, so I believe, of course, that uh, men and women are all uh, infinitely valuable. Mm -hmm. Each individual man and woman is infinitely valuable, infinitely contains the divine spark. And so infinitely worthy of protection and um you know, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to put down men or women. And also the Marxism question <laughs> touches on, um, you know, there's this idea of scarcity that kind of we've been, and I think you've even had a guest who's talked about kind of the mind control of scarcity. Like, Yeah, Bob hey, Tuscan we, was talking about exactly that, yeah. You know, we can't give uh, medical um, coverage to everybody because they would just use too much of it. Well, um, you know, actually... The, the 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 Native American holy man, Black Elk, also talked about the vision of, hey, there's enough for everybody. That's what we used to live by. And then all of a sudden, all these uh, Europeans came in and invaded our our home. And um, they had this idea of, of kind of um, this gnawing flood of greed because there was never enough for everybody mm. and they're chasing after something and they can never have enough and they, they you know they carved everything up and they're still not happy and they want to carve it up even more so um uh, you know i would just say that i think the myths speak to all these contemporary issues in a very powerful way i don't want to get too off on on uh, on uh, you know political or sensitive topics but i would just say that um uh, the more i've looked at these the more my understanding kind of of uh, economics and politics has been challenged by, uh, you know, out of some of the uh, ways of thinking that we sometimes just fall into almost without, without even questioning mm -hmm. that actually, hey, maybe we can provide freeways for everybody and we don't have to be worried that they'll use up the freeways. You know, here in the U.S., we have this fantastic interstate system that's provided by mainly by our taxes and, and it's not toll roads every five miles in most of the country. Yeah. Well, that actually, you know, we don't worry about, Hey, people are going to use up the freeways. Um, 
oh, we, we can't provide free highways to everybody or they'll use them too much. Well, what, what are you talking about? Use them too much. That makes it easier to run a business that you don't have to pay a toll every five miles when you're moving your uh, band around from one gig to the next or whatever. Yeah. Or if you're running a bakery, you don't have to pay toll on those roads. So that actually uh, benefits everybody. I'm not saying we should get rid of small business or, <laughs> or a competition. You know, if I'm running a burrito shop, I should have to worry about the next burrito shop down the street uh, being better than mine. So mm. that's good for everybody. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, let's get rid of that, but I am saying uh, the the myths themselves appear to have this idea of the infinite realm will provide. Um, it, 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 we have everything we need actually right inside of us, so we don't always have to be chasing after this external thing. And it's been twisted to where, oh, you, you don't have enough, you better chase after this guru or this savior or this, um, you know, thing that you don't have. Actually, the myths tell you, you've got it right inside of you and the gods and goddesses will appear in an instant because, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the myths of ancient India, I've mentioned before that when, when you say a mantra to call uh, on Krishna or Durga, she Durga appears instantly. Krishna appears instantly. Well, why is that? Because you always had access to them. Yeah. Okay. So I've gone off on a tangent. Let's get back to Artemis and what you said. What I was trying to uh, kind of lead in with was this is a coherent system and the zodiac wheel that, um, you know, some of us are very familiar with the zodiac wheel, but the zodiac wheel is a way of um, speaking to more and more specific parts specific things, you know, you can divide up the year by the solstices and the equinoxes. And we're coming up on a, another solstice, just as we were the last time we spoke a year ago, the winter solstice. Well, there's certain uh, spiritual, there's a spiritual code to the winter solstice. It's the lowest part of the year, the, the sun in the sky. In the northern hemisphere, it happens in December. It's the coldest part of the year. You were mentioning, you know, you're in Ireland. You're farther north than I am. It's getting cold now. Yeah, <laughs> it's it certainly getting dark is. now. The, the the sky is already dark by, you know, 4.30 or 5 o'clock. It's pitch black and you can see the stars. Yeah. Whereas in the summertime, you can see uh, the sun stays up until 9 in the evening, you know, or 2100 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, now it's dark at 4. So the winter solstice... Um, the sun is descending farther and farther and farther down that wheel. And then it doesn't go down forever. There's a turning point at the winter solstice, which is a time of rebirth or a time of second birth or a time of spiritual birth. Because um, I believe that the, the, the system that's found around the world allegorizes or, or makes a metaphor out of this wheel to where when we cross the, the fall equinox, we, we plunge down from the upper half of the year to the lower half of the year. That's when the days were longer, daylight was longer than nighttime in the summer months. And then at equinox, it, it, it crosses over. And so we drop down into the lower half of the year when nighttime starts to dominate and it keeps getting longer and longer nights 
but it doesn't keep getting longer forever. There's a turning point, a second birth. And at that point on this great cycle um, is the winter solstice, but there are specific constellations there. And I believe Artemis, who is this virgin goddess, but she presides over, she's present at every single childbirth. And in, in ancient Greece, women, you know, giving birth would call on Artemis to help her, uh, them. She's located actually uh, at that turning point uh, in her her celestial uh, referent that the way we understand her, I believe that this invisible realm is actually real. The, the, the constellations are like a marker to help us understand them. So we can get into that. Does, am I making that kind of, it's a big topic, but. Yeah, huge topic, but essentially we're dealing with a code here and how to crack the code as we've discussed in our last interviews. That's exactly right. And so the four points of the year that are actually pretty easy to, to they're kind of like great handrails to know where we are in the year are the, the solstices and the equinoxes. And you're there in Ireland in some of the most uh, impressive and majestic, you know, passage uh, mounds were aligned to these different uh, points on the year, the, the equinoxes and the solstices, and the sun would only will still um, will only penetrate all the way back to this stone on the certain day or on the three days around the solstice. And some of them, so if you uh, think of a, um, a watch dial, there are some kind of modernistic watches where there's only a 12, you know, at the very top and the rest is just maybe dots or maybe even more kind of art deco or modernistic ones will only have, you know, a dot at the top, a dot at the three o'clock position, a dot at six and a dot at nine. Mm. Well, how do you know if it's 2 PM or how do you know if it's five? Well, you've been looking at watches enough to where you can know. Yeah. But that's, but a child maybe who's trying to learn to tell time, that wouldn't be the best watch to start them off with or best clock. So we can further subdivide it by, and that's like the four stations of the year, the the solstices and equinoxes. That's great for discussing the spiritual cycle. Well, we come down into the, the body at the fall equinox. That's where we descend down into this incarnate realm into the material realm. It's actually just as a quick aside, it it may be a little bit counterintuitive. People might think, well, wait a minute, the lower half of the year, the dark, the shadowy part of the year, the winter months, that must be death. That must be where we go when we die. But actually there's a brilliant, insightful writer named Alvin Boyd Kuhn, whose writings on this subject I found very helpful, says, that it, you might think that, but that's actually how they allegorized this life. You see, the the celestial realms, the realm of spirit, that's like the 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 summer months. Okay, we're down here. We're plowing through the difficult journey of incarnation, where we actually have to be a spirit trapped inside a human body. <laughs> that's hard. Mm. That's being encased in clay. That's you know, our body is like the lower. We're here in the lower realms, but we have a divine spark. But when we first plunge into the lower realm, we don't even know that. So that's our first birth at the fall equinox. But then we get this turning point. And the turning point is 
at the winter solstice. So as I was saying about the clock, just to finish off that metaphor, you could further subdivide it with cross-quarter days. And actually, many of the passage mounds um, in the Boyne River Valley there in Ireland, um, so some of the most biggest, largest most impressive ones are lined up to the solstices and equinoxes, but there's these other supporting mounds and a lot of them are lined up to the cross quarter days. Like, um, you have Halloween is, uh, you know, all saints day. That's one of the cross quarter days. It's halfway between the, uh, fall equinox and the winter solstice. And then we have over here, we do groundhogs day. That's in February. Um, uh, that's that's halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. So you could further subdivide your clock with the cross quarter days, but then you could get even more specific if you really wanted to say, hey, it's 5 p.m. and it's 12 minutes after 5. To do that, you'd have to have a fairly well uh, intricately subdivided clock dial to yeah. know that it's 12 minutes. So there's where the zodiac constellations come in now i can actually say not only are we somewhere in between um winter solstice and spring equinox but right now we're in the house of aquarius or the sign of aquarius the sun is rising in aquarius okay well i've said a lot i still haven't actually gotten into artemis and Actaeon, but the goddess artemis i believe presides over uh childbirth because she's a goddess that is actually connected with the constellation of Sagittarius, which is down at the bottom of the wheel. And it's actually Sagittarius and Scorpio are at the either side of the brightest, thickest part of the, of the Milky Way galaxy. The beautiful Milky Way band, if you're out in a nice dark night, you can see it uh, arcing across the sky at almost any time of the year. It's actually like a huge ring that, um, that, that flips over and over like a wedding ring that flips over and over. So sometimes we see one half of the inside of the wedding ring. And sometimes we see the other half of the inside of the wedding ring and the brightest, thickest part, excuse me, is right in between Sagittarius and Scorpio. And that is where we see this feature called the great rift the great rift is this kind of dark passage that's actually the part if you look at the ouroboros the serpent that's biting its tail yeah you know that symbol of the serpent biting its tail is most likely in my opinion a milky way symbol because the milky way itself resembles a serpent biting its tail and at that widest point it's almost like the mouth of the serpent biting its own tail and and the kind of the dark features within that rift that sometimes can be seen as a serpent biting its own tail was also allegorized. We know this as a birth canal, the, the cosmic mother in the Maya, uh, in some of the central American, uh, traditions. Yeah. So, so that's actually where, uh, I, as I was analyzing the stories of Artemis to find out, well, where is she on the, how, how um, She's an archer, and Sagittarius, actually the constellation, is an archer. And we usually think of Sagittarius as male, but actually a lot of these constellations, almost all of them, will play in different myths, uh, male gods and female gods, male heroes and female heroes. Um, so Sagittarius is an archer, 
has a very distinctive uh, bow and arrow pointing across the Milky Way towards the Scorpion. And if you, once you start to know kind of the code, she is bathing with her attendant nymphs or her, uh, that she likes to go hunting with out in the wilds of the forest. She's a hunter. She's um, an archer and she's very severe. She's a virgin and she um, is attended by nymphs. And that's very frequently found in um, myths that are right around this great rift, right around this wide part of the Milky Way, because it resembles kind of a pool. You know, the Milky Way could be allegorized as a column of fire, mm-hmm. a pillar of smoke, but it could also be allegorized as a river. It could be allegorized as a ocean stream. And uh, the widest part is often a pool. In a lot of the myths, like in the Odyssey, the the weary voyagers will pull up to an island and then there'll be this beautiful spring and there's nymphs there at the spring or there's maidens a lot of times like Nausicaa that's um when Odysseus lands on uh he's finally starting to get back towards his own civilization uh this princess comes down with her attendant you know other maidens to wash their clothes and that's where she encounters odysseus it's the same part of the sky um aphrodite uh after she's wounded in battle in the iliad will go be bathed by her attendant goddesses or or graces at the uh at, at, at a special pool that she likes to bathe in it's all the same i believe the same constellations giving rise to these, um, it works its way out in myths in different f- forms, talking about different goddesses or different characters, but it's all pointing us to the same part on the dial that has spiritual significance. So when we see that, we can say, aha, this part may have something to do with the winter solstice, that turn. Well, that makes complete sense. And I really like the analogy of the watch or the clock because that is essentially what you're talking about. And I mean, what is a watch or a clock? Only a way of decoding the time. And you have a different construct here time-wise, but you're decoding it in the very same way. And that just makes complete sense to me. Yeah, actually, that's great. Um, Thanks for saying that because the watch is actually a model of the heavens when you think about it. Why does the... Why do the hands move clockwise? Well, if you're looking, if you're staring at the North Pole, looking straight down on our Earth, which way would it turn, clockwise or counterclockwise? I'll tell you the answer. Um, it, you know, everyone can puzzle that out in your mind. But if you think of looking down on the Earth and think of, like for me, I would think of North America, the East Coast. Uh, you know, it's three hours ahead in the East Coast right now um, because it's we're turning towards the East. So as you're looking down. The, the earth is actually turning counterclockwise. So why do the hands go around clockwise? Mm. Well, you can actually envision your the center of your watch dial as the North Pole, and you're looking down on it. And instead of, it'd be kind of hard to have the face turning uh, in the counterclockwise direction like the earth actually turns. So instead you have the hands moving around, but you could actually envision the hands as staying still and the background turning underneath that uh, would be a model of the earth. So <laughs> the watch is a, all our time has to do with these heavenly cycles. You know, a minute is actually a measure of distance on, on the earth. You know, we subdivide longitude up into minutes. It's actually a amount of time that the earth takes to turn a certain distance. And so 
all time is related to the heavenly cycles. It's a construct, of course. And all these things, all these cycles can be observed. And we talked, to, touched on a little bit last time, as above, so below. Yeah. We actually observe the cycles of the heavens in our own lives. We celebrate our birthday when the earth has come back around to where we were when we were born. We uh, celebrate things like the winter solstice. And three days after that, winter solstice is usually on December 21st. It slips a little bit due to the fact that the earth doesn't turn an exact even number of times to get back to the exact same spot. But three days after the winter solstice, we celebrate Christmas Eve is usually on the 20 or is always on the 24th. That has, we can get into that, but um, we align our lives to the heavens. And I think it goes back to what Black Elk taught, taught us that this world, there's a real world behind this one, the invisible realm as above, so below, we recognize it's not as below, so above. Mm. We don't try and force Christmas to be whenever we want it. We, turn, we build our lives around the heavenly realms because we're acknowledging that the spiritual realm is actually the source for everything in this material realm. We celebrate our birthday because we came down from this spiritual realm and boom, we popped into a human body, you know, on our birthday. Mm. But we're acknowledging that the, sp the spirit realm, and this gets back to Artemis, the spirit realm has primacy or primacy or, or superiority over the material realm. And it always goes badly in the Greek myths when a beautiful young princess declares that she's more beautiful than this or that goddess. You never want to do that in the Greek myths because you'll, uh, you know, you'll be challenged to uh, some sort of a, uh, you know, a contest against the goddess. And then you'll be shown that you're not as beautiful as she is. Or you're not as talented as she is. Or in, because all those gifts come from the invisible realm. So for us to say, oh, I'm a better musician than Apollo invites disaster because Apollo is the God of music that gave you that gift. So don't put the, the, don't put the uh, gift higher than its source. Don't put yourself higher than the source of your, your gift. Uh, so I think as above, so below reflects that. And, and that's why Artemis is very quick to punish transgressions um, because she's defending that, uh, that order that we're not supposed to violate. When those transgressions occur, in what way does Artemis wreak havoc or express disapproval? And how, how, can, we, how can we know about what's going to happen in that case? Like, how do we decode <laughs> that side of it? Right. Great question. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for leading the witness to an <laughs> excellent point. No, I mean, it shows that you really, you really uh, understand it on a deep level because she turns. So Acteon, if anyone is uh, familiar with that most famous, uh, one of the most famous myths involving Artemis, Acteon, after a long day of hunting, he is, um, he's hanging up his, his hunting gear to dry out in the sun. And he goes wandering in the woods, just kind of becomes charmed by the beauty of the woods, wanders away from his hunting companions and accidentally stumbles across this uh, widening in the Milky Way galaxy or this, this beautiful grotto, this pond where Artemis happens to be bathing. And all her nymphs gather around her to shield her from his 
you know, profane gaze because mm. he's he's entranced when he sees her beauty. He cannot look away. Unfortunate for him. And she says, you uh, you, you like staring at me. That's a bad thing to do. And she splashes some water on him and she says, um, you know, now try and tell your friends that you saw a goddess while bathing. And he is, uh, you know, horrifically transformed into a, a stag, a deer, and he finds that he can't speak and he tries to say something, you know, to apologize and he finds he can't speak. His tongue has been turned into the tongue of a deer. He just kind of manages to bleat out this, uh, you know, he feels horns growing on his head and he starts running away in fear. He doesn't even know why he's afraid. Ovid, um, who's the, the you know, Latin, Roman, uh, wrote the metamorphosis, talks about this in graphic detail. He doesn't even know why he's afraid, but he's filled with terror because he's a deer now. And he finds himself bounding through the woods and taking enormous leaps. He can't even understand why he's able to leap so much until he sees his face in a stream or something. But then his hunting companions, the dogs all smell this, uh, steer uh, stag excuse me running by and they start giving chase it's his own dogs he can't call them off because he can no longer use his voice yeah his own his own friends tear him to pieces well um you know they 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 they, they give chase they say oh look the dogs have found a, a stag it's a horrible death and the, the dogs pull him down you know he goes down under the uh, uh, so he's turned into an animal Okay, mm. what is what that actually happens to a lot of um, humans or mortals who challenge the gods in some way? Like Arachne is the uh, you know beautiful princess who is a great weaver, but she's uh, skill at at the tapestry at the loom, but she is boastful and arrogant, and she boasts that she's a better uh, at, at weaving than even the goddess Athena, she's turned into a spider. And that's where we have arachnids. Well, being turned into a, an animal, you see, when we come down into this human body, we're, uh, <laughs> we're a cross between a spirit and a, a hum, human flesh. We're in the animal world. Mm. And yet we're supposed to reconnect with our spiritual side. We're not supposed to just turn into brute, um, you know, kill or be killed, uh, dog eat dog world. We're not supposed to act like animals. So the myths are portraying that we're supposed to actually be elevating ourselves and others. We're supposed to be reconnecting with our spiritual side, with our higher self. We talked about this last time with our divine self. We actually do have a higher self. This is portrayed in a lot of myths, um, Greek myths, in the Bible, in in the Greek myths, there's the twins of Castor and Pollux. They are um, they are actually twin brothers, but one of them turns out to be divine, and the other one turns out to be mortal. And uh, Castor is the mortal brother, and Pollux is his divine twin. And Castor actually dies and goes down to the underworld, and Pollux comes down to rescue him. Well. That actually has to do with, I believe, this metaphor has to do with our own life. We're down here encased in this uh, mortal body, but our higher self lifts us up or, or mm. there's our spiritual self that we're supposed to be getting in touch. We're supposed to be lifting other people up, not putting them down. But when we put them down, we're, we're making them more bestial. 
and we're actually making ourselves more bestial as well. When we objectify someone else, if we call them a, a racial epithet, what are we doing? We're identifying someone just based on their external appearance. We're, we're, if we're putting someone down and we're using a, 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 a derogatory term for women and we call a woman that, what are we doing? We're identifying her with her physical. We're trying to bring her down to the most physical level. That's wrong. Mm. And so we're not supposed to do that. If we do that, we'll turn into animals ourselves. When we objectify others, uh, we, object, we, we become an object ourselves. And that's uh, the wrong path. That, you know, If we do that enough, we won't escape this kind of cycle of incarnation. Or you know, we, we could talk about what, what it could mean. But becoming more bestial, if you think of any curse word, cursing is putting people down. And almost all curse words have to do with body attributes or yeah. physical characteristics, like calling someone a body part, usually a sexual body part or a, you know, something to do with, uh, you know, going to the bathroom. Those most, most curse words have to do with, oh, that guy's a blank. You're, you're trying to lower him to a objectified, physical, bestial, uh, corporal, aspect. And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be blessing, not cursing. All the different myths of the world talk about that. We're supposed to be blessing, not cursing. Uh, we're supposed to be lifting up others and saying, hey, you know, I've, I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a divine spark. You've got a divine spark like you do on your show. You know, you're, we're trying to uh, get back to that and um, not sink down to the bestial level. So a lot of times when we fail to honor the gods or in the Greek myths, when a mortal fails to honor the gods, they'll usually get turned into an animal and then torn to pieces in some way. It sounds like you're saying that like each of the individual gods represent a section of the spiritual self or a place on the wheel or the watch or the clock, whatever you want to call it. And if we deny them, then we are returned to the lower state that is represented by the animal, say, for example, the spider or the deer or whatever it might be, until we learn those lessons again within that realm and then we're elevated to the kind of halfway house of uh, humanity, if you want to call it that. And then we got to learn our lessons in this mortal body as the spiritual self and then we're, we're re-elevated again. Is that what we're talking about? We're talking about steps on the ladder and if you don't maintain the particular step that you're on or if you don't strive to get up to the next one, well then what's beneath you will rot and you'll fall kind of down to the lower rung well there there appears to be in the myths um so this is something i had to wrestle with because as i've mentioned in our previous interviews i took the bible very literally yeah uh and then uh as i started to see based on some of the writings of others and also uh my own knowledge of h.a ray we've talked about the constellations of h.a ray yeah you've got to use the outline of h.a ray for sagittarius or you won't be able to see even the bow and arrow that artemis and other sagittarius figures carry but because of my great familiar familiarity with h.a ray um, once i started to see that some of the bible stories are based on the constellations um I was also very familiar with the Bible because I'd been reading it very diligently for uh, quite a number of years, taking it literally. Um, I started to see more and more, oh, oh, wait a minute, this looks like it's also based on the stars. And pretty soon I realized it's from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, 
based on the stars. Then I had to ask myself, well, why? What does it mean? Mm. So um, I believe this is a good explanation for what it could be doing. Um, I believe that you find a theme of uh, incarnation, successive incarnation, reincarnation in many of the stories of the world, not just ancient India, but even in North America, South America, Central America, they have um, the Milky Way galaxy. There are uh, traditions that are talked about in Hamlet's Mill and also in other, uh, you know, people who in the 1800s recorded some of these myths from people who still had that tradition unbroken, talked about, well, the Milky Way is the kind of the soul road where the soul, you know, after someone passes away, their soul goes onto that Milky Way road and then goes along that road and is reborn at the other end. At the other end is where, you know, you knew the spirit comes back into a new incarnation. And actually there are, uh, writers, particularly in the 1800s, some people like Alvin Boyd Kuhn, he was actually early 1900s, but, uh, Gerald Massey, uh, some of these, uh, more, free thinking or mystical writers in the 1800s noted that there is even evidence that the Bible may talk about reincarnation or have references that appear to suggest reincarnation. But because it's been taken literally, all the interpretations have been uh, altered or, or we see them uh, differently. So I don't know if it's as exactly as, you know, linear or it's not exactly maybe as cyclical as literally reincarnation. You know, you wait 100 years, then you come back. Yeah. I'm not sure it's, I'm not sure it's like that, but I do believe all the myths and scriptures, the system appears, this ancient wisdom that's found throughout the world's myths appears to say, look, we're down here for a reason. That reason involves blessing, not cursing, raising up. Mm. And it, it may actually involve the creation of something that in some of the Eastern traditions where the Roman Empire didn't get to, like in China, in India, they talk about um, building a spirit body or a diamond body, it's sometimes called. You actually have to be working on some of the Taoist alchemy, the Taoist meditation, which is still to this day been kept pretty secret, you know, but, but there's certain, you meditate for hours on end, not just to clear your mind, but also to get in touch with your higher self or for your lower self, your accumulated self, your artificial self to uh, unwind, but also to actually um, get in touch with your chi, you know, your inner energy, which actually we all have. Everyone actually has a higher self, but a lot of us go through our whole life never even... Um, just kind of having a vague, maybe every now and then, oh, I got this kind of mm, intuition that I shouldn't go there. Yeah. And I'm sure glad I didn't. And wow, that was weird. Well, maybe it's your higher self trying to get a hold of you, um, trying to get in touch with you. You're, we also all have chi, you know, this, this kind of spiritual energy within our body that some, you know, we, we hear about these stories of these uh, Tibetan advanced masters who can put their hand in the snow and melt the snow and you know they can have wet blankets put on them in the in the freezing cold and then the blanket 
you know, they don't even get cold because their body temperature, they're able to manipulate their chi so uh, fluidly and so effortlessly that they can do all these amazing feats that you or I would say that's impossible. Well, it may be that we're down here to uh, somehow uh, in, uh, do these disciplines. I do believe that yoga is this ancient discipline that has a lot more to it than the postures, but the postures are important. And Tai Chi and Kung Fu and meditation and Taoist um, practices may actually be um, for somehow <laughs> transcending this cycle, you know, that, yeah. that, that we're in. I don't know. But there certainly appears to be a strong uh, current of that running through all the uh, world's ancient myths. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating when you look at it in that way, because there is so much that we don't know, but that we can know if we start to decode it. So heading back to the book and some of the other codes that are fascinating to me, before we get on to the Bible, which we will do, everybody loves the symbolism of the one eye, and we see we talk <laughs> about it so much on this show, so it seems like the obvious place to go and talk about Cyclops. Tell us a little bit about that and what the celestial foundation for the myth is. Great, great one, John. Um, and I would, I would say that volume two, so I'll, I will get to the Cyclops real quick. Yep. I don't want to blurt out the answer, but just like all the other volumes, I actually, it's got two halves to it. So the first half, I just tell the myths. Uh, each chapter, you kind of read it one chapter at a time. So the, the, the chapter on Artemis will relate the story of Artemis and Acteon. There's also another myth involving Artemis that I, um, that I unpack, which has to do with a sacrifice of Iphigenia mm -hmm. at the, uh, on the crossing to tr the tro Trojan War. Um, so these are clues that I, uh, so I, I explain the myth, I point out certain clues. Okay, Iphigenia, instead of being sacrificed in the myths, in most of the stories of Iphigenia, she's not actually slain. Um, Artemis substitutes a stag in her place. Well, that's that's interesting because we just saw Acteon turned into a stag. So we may be talking about the same constellations again. So Iphigenia, when her father's about to sacrifice her, everything goes dark for a second and she's spirited away by the goddess and she actually becomes a goddess herself which I, uh, Iphigenia becomes a goddess herself which I believe uh, points to this same uh, divine spark that we're talking about but um, then I say okay this is interesting what constellations have we seen that might be a stag etc cetera, etc cetera. turn to page 530 and we'll talk about that's where I lay out the star charts to show this is what I believe is happening. I believe it's the constellation Sagittarius and the constellation Centaurus or the Centaur, which can actually look like a stag. When I saw that, then I, that suddenly a light bulb came on. That was kind of a, you know, one of those messages that comes from the other realm. When I saw, I had to figure out who is the stag and it's the Centaur can actually be a stag. Okay. Um, so the book is kind of arranged almost like a puzzle. You read the chapter on the Odyssey, because you're referring probably to the episode where Odysseus and his companions um, have to go check out the island of the Cyclops against Odysseus's better judgment. In fact, all his companions say, hey, 
let's not let's leave those cyclops alone we don't want to go there they look really big they look pretty scary and odysseus is like no let's go see if we can get a gift from them we'll give him a gift we'll see what he has to give us i want to get something from the cyclops it's one of the uh, parts of the odyssey where odysseus kind of acts his uh <laughs> his lower self maybe gets the best of him. Usually Odysseus is this character who's very attuned to his higher self. He's the one who hears the voice of the gods, specifically the voice of the goddess. In this case, Athena is his most um, helping goddess. And I, to, to your earlier question, I do believe that these powers, um, they're not just places on the Zodiac. They are actual uh you know, there's actual invisible realm that we have to be, you know, cognizant of. But there, there is a passage in Alvin Boyd Kuhn, uh, one of his writings, I forget exactly where, I think it's in his 1940 very magisterial book called Lost Light. Lost Light, he says, we have to, he's talking about ancient Egypt, but uh, there's a sense in which we do have to incorporate the aspects of all the gods and goddesses before we can get out of this cycle of incarnation. We have to um, uh, absorb all their gifts before we can... So we're down here for some kind of reason. Okay. So uh, back to Odysseus. The Cyclops figures do figure, uh, uh, do appear in the Greek creation myth also that uh, Hesiod or Hesiod, um, very ancient, um, talks about well, there was, you know, Gaia, the earth, and the Uranos, the sky, and then they had the children, the Titans. Uh, but first they had these children that uh, had a hundred hands, the hundred-handed ones, and Uranos, the father, was very uh, upset about them, and he threw them down into Tartarus, the pit. And then uh, the next children were actually Cyclops, and they were great metal workers, but they all had a single eye, but they were gigantic. And they're the ones who actually forge the thunderbolt for Zeus later on. Um, so there are other Cyclops, but uh, you're probably referring to the, the story of Odysseus, where he yeah. has to go check out this cave where this one Cyclops lives all by himself, all alone. He doesn't do commerce with anybody else. The Cyclops can't even build ships. You know, the, the, home, uh, the Odyssey tells us whether it was written by Homer or not. I don't know. But... Um, Homer may be a, a, a name that refers to uh, the divine realm, actually. But anyway, the Cyclops, they live by themselves. They, they don't participate in the exchanging of gifts. When, when Odysseus says, hey, uh, could you please honor this tradition of gifts? The Cyclops says, yeah, I'll give you a gift. I'll kill you last after I've eaten all your companions. And Odysseus goes, great. I've wandered into a, I've wandered into a zone where they don't respect the gods. In fact, the Cyclops even says, I don't fear the gods because Odysseus says, hey, you shouldn't go against the rules of the gods or they're going to come uh, get you eventually. And Cyclops says, I'm the son of Poseidon and I'm stronger than most of the other gods. So I don't even worry about it. So uh, Odysseus and his companions go up to this gigantic cave. The Cyclops is away, but they see, you know, all this stuff inside the cave. They go inside, there's these huge cheeses and uh, vats of milk. And they go, what's going on here? And they, uh, they help themselves to some of the food. And then the Cyclops comes in. He, he's been out tending his sheep. He comes in and they're terrified. They, they, they huddle against the walls. He, 
he puts a huge stone in front of the the uh, the the doorway. Hmm. Okay. Now that huge stone, the huge boulder in front of a cave, we actually see that in the Bible, right? In the New Testament, in the in the resurrection story. Um, but back to Odysseus and his men are now. He he took just. Uh, a small handful of companions to go check out the Cyclops Island. Now he's trapped inside the cave. And when the Cyclops notices these little humans huddling against the wall, he grabs two of Odysseus's companions, smashes their head against the ground and unceremoniously dashes their brains out and proceeds to devour them. So he's also a cannibal. So now then he, he drinks uh, and goes to sleep and Odysseus thinks, okay, I'm going to kill this Cyclops. He's, he's got his sword out. He's about to kill the Cyclops. And then his higher self taps him on the shoulder and says, you don't want to do that. See, there's a big boulder in front of the cave that only the Cyclops can move. You'll be trapped here. Yeah. So he's got to come up with a, he's got to use his higher self. He's got to get in touch with his higher self and come up with a plan. Um, that will be brilliant. And so long story short, because we want to get to the Bible stories as well. As we all know, the Cyclops goes away, uh, rolls the stone in front so they can't get out. And Odysseus and his companions are racking their brains. How can we get out of this predicament? They decide, as you, you probably are well familiar with the story, hopefully it's not a spoiler for any of your listeners. They decide to use a, 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 a big... Uh, pole that's lying around. They sharpen the end of it. They put the end into the fire to get it hardened. And then they kind of hide it underneath all the garbage and rubbish that's lying around the, the filthy cave of the Cyclops. And then that night, Odysseus pulls out. He says, look, I brought this uh, when the Cyclops comes back, kills a couple more of Odysseus's companions. And Odysseus says, hey, I brought you a gift of, I was going to give you this gift of wine, but you're, you're, you know, you're not obeying the laws of man or gods. And the Cyclops says, well, give me the wine anyway. And he starts to drink it. He becomes drunk. He kind of passes out, or at least he's in a drunken stupor. And Odysseus and his companions drive the spear into the eyeball of the, the single eye of the Cyclops. Now the Cyclops is blinded. Um, and, and, but he always herds his sheep and his goats into the cave at night to protect him. He's actually very tender and merciful towards his sheep and his goats. He talks to them. Well, he, he has to let them out in the morning cause they're all the, the females are bleating. They want to be milked. So he has to milk them and he has to let them out to go to the pasture to go eat some nice forage. So he sits down at the cave and he lets them out and Odysseus and his companions tie themselves underneath the sheep and slip out that way. So while, while the Cyclops is feeling the backs of the sheep to make sure there's no humans trying to slip out, they are underneath. Well, all of this can be seen in the sky. And it takes a little bit of familiarity with the constellations, which is where the understanding of H.A. Ray's outlines is so important. But even right now in the sky, you can still barely see the, and I actually just wrote a blog post, a blog post about uh, actually a story from the New Testament where Peter is told by Jesus, hey, go down to the sea, pull out a fish, hook a fish. The first fish you pull out will have a coin in its mouth. Pay the tribute money or this, you know, this Roman official is asking for a, a tribute or the, the toll, basically. And 
Peter says, should we pay it? Uh, the Roman official says, do your, do your disciples uh, pay the tax or not? And uh, Jesus says, well, do the children of the king, does the king charge tolls to the children or to strangers? And they say, and Peter says, strangers. So I guess we don't have to pay, pay it because we're the children of the king. And, and Jesus says, well, so we don't offend, go down and pull out a fish. This also relates to the constellation Aquarius because he's positioned right above a fish. And I actually wrote a blog post where I tell you how to find Aquarius. Well, Aquarius has his distinctive diamond-shaped head with a single eye right in the middle. And I believe that the, the single eye of Aquarius gives us the Cyclops in the, in the Odysseus story. Actually, that same cycle that I was telling you about the wheel, I trace out the Odyssey in, in actually six chapters in, in volume two, which is all about Greek myths. He bounces back and forth along this lower half of the wheel as he's going through this mortal life. It's almost like Odysseus is in the spin cycle. And he encounters the same constellations a lot of times in different garb. Sometimes the constellation Aquarius is a giant that's spearing all his men like fish. And sometimes he's the Cyclops. So the single eye in the middle of Aquarius's head is, is the single eye that gives us the Cyclops. And actually Aquarius is carrying this water pitcher. It can also look like a hammer. The Cyclops are great smiths. And um, so I believe that actually you can f- draw an imaginary line between the, the, the stars in different ways and that you can draw one right to that eye and envision Odysseus and his uh, five companions driving the spear into the eye of the Cyclops. And then there's other constellations right nearby. There's Capricorn. Capricorn, those familiar with the Zodiac or astrology will know that Capricorn is a sign of the Zodiac that's right before Aquarius. Well, this constellation Capricorn, which is a goat, but sometimes plays a sheep as well. Um, uh, And the Cyclops does have goats as well. Anyway, Capricorn is right there. I think that has to do with the story and they slip out underneath. Um, I, I diagram it all in the book, but that's what I believe is going on in this story. It's kind of a long explanation, but I think it's fascinating. I could, I could go on and on about it. I wonder sometimes, are there correlations then between the law, the law of man, if you want to call it that, and admirality, uh, the law of the sea and commerce and how they all seem to relate in some way to this story. I mean, Cyclops didn't do commerce, um, son of Poseidon, all this kind of stuff. It just seems, to, there seems to be a, a common thread that runs throughout almost anything that's constructed by man. It seems to be by the authorities with heavy use of quotation marks there are the powers that be or want to be. They seem to stay quite true in an allegorical sense to a lot of these star myths. The whole as above so below thing seems to just pop up time and time and time again, even in the most seemingly unconnected of ways. Yeah, and that's a deep, deep subject or a big, big uh, Pandora's box to use another myth that you just opened. I think, you know, it's an extremely insightful comment because, you know, I believe it gets to the question of are these myths, you know, are they there to uplift us or are they there to bind us down? Mm. Um, You know, I believe they've been used uh, to... Uh, oppress and bind down and say, oh, some people are not 
as divine as other people or, oh, we can enslave those people or, oh, we can take their lands away from them. I believe that actually that's an inversion or a twisting of, I believe these myths are actually, I, first of all, I believe they're extremely ancient. How are they all around the world using the same system? Yeah. This, you know, I believe they probably came from some predecessor cu- culture like, you know, now more recently, Gobekli Tepe has been excavated and the dating we're told is that it was completed by 10,000 BC, not 10,000 years ago, 10,000 BC, right? Well, ancient Egypt was like 3000 BC, 2000 BC, 1000 BC. That was like 5,000 years ago for us. Well, Gobekli Tepe must have been 7,000 years ago for them or five five or 6,000 years. In other words, Gobekli Tepe was as ancient to the Egyptians as the Egyptians are to us. Yeah. So, so probably some, and, and for a long time, and even still, ancient Egypt or ancient Mesopotamia is still taught in academia as, oh, that's the first civilization, or that's, you know, before that, it was primitive humans, hunter-gatherers, or, you know, just simple uh, sheep past- pastoral kind of, and then we had civilization, Mesopotamia, Egypt. No, there was something before them that was uh, extremely ancient. And that's probably, probably this ancient myth system comes from something extremely ancient because we already see it in use in the earliest pyramid texts of ancient Egypt. And we already see it in use in the earliest cuneiform tablets of ancient Mesopotamia, the Gilgamesh epic, or some of the other even earlier cuneiform tablets appear to be using the same celestial system. So um, your original insightful point was, well, what about laws that kind of bind us? I, I think, um, I think actually the Cyclops is a, I used to be pretty libertarian, <laughs> but actually I think the Cyclops may be kind of, you know what, we're actually supposed to work together and take care of people who are weaker. It's great if you're super strong, like the Cyclops, he can live all by himself, Yeah. but pure hard libertarian just reduces you to a little island living by yourself like the, you know, oh, well, I don't have to take care of them. I mean, obviously this is a exaggeration, but I, I do believe that actually, um, the Cyclops is, a, you know, he's a negative example, but the, the laws are supposed to come from the spiritual realm or the, the, what we're supposed to be doing is not beating down other people. So if we're using these myths as an excuse to go to war and take away someone else's lands or their resources, then we're obviously inverting it because all those people are infinite, uh, infinitely valuable. You can't say, oh, um, you know, hey, those people, we have to go convert them to our uh, understanding of the Bible because they're just, you know, they're living in ignorance over there in their pagan ways. We better go fix their problem. Uh, but it's been used that way as an excuse to commit all kinds of horrible atrocities and, and genocides and, and other things um, that are absolutely the opposite, I believe, of what it's really teaching. So it's a big subject (laughs) that gets into all kinds of sticky, tricky, but uh, incredibly important uh, areas because I believe it is a tool, can be used as a tool 
of oppression and actually mind control. What better way to get someone to obey you than to say, you know, if you uh, if you disobey that that uh, preacher or that that uh, you know that guy, you'll go to hell. Mm. If you if you disobey your husband, you could go to hell. Well, that's a great way to control people without even using physical violence. You just threaten them with eternal burning and sulfur. But um, I believe that's actually a, a misinterpretation of what these things are supposed to be uplifting. Uh, or It's just like Kung Fu. I use the metaphor of Kung Fu really works, but it can be used for beating people up or it can be used for protecting and, uh, you know, stopping violence. Exactly. Stopping. There's always a duality there. And it's, it's how you interpret that or how you choose to use it is what will either raise you or lift you up or send you to the underworld, to use that analogy. <laughs> right. Or back to the. And so I think if we're if the laws are being used as a, a, a bludgeon to take away somebody's land or to defile their uh, sacred traditions, you know, hey, we're going to take away your sacred uh, land and build an oil pipeline through it. You know, there's a big controversy going right now in the, uh, you know, here in the United States of America with a pipeline. And if the law is, if people are saying, well, we can use this law to turn um, freezing cold water on these protesters in 20 degree 20 degree Fahrenheit below freezing temperatures mm. that are peacefully protesting this pipeline, that's wrong. So, um, and, and, you know, we can point back to the myths and say, you shouldn't, the, actually, all the resources of the earth are also gifts of the gods. Don't forget that. Don't just say, oh, well, this law says it belongs to this corporation and we don't have to worry about anybody else. Well, uh, you left out the fact that, that that oil was given to you by, you know, the God of the underworld or whoever, mm. uh, all these resources, you better acknowledge the divine realm. You better not ignore the divine realm because it always goes bad when we do that. And I think we're starting to see that in a geopolitical sense and in a, a societal sense as well. And I think that kind of brings us on to the Bible as well, David, because we do have to look into the Bible. And there were, uh, there were a couple of things that stood out for me. I mean, what a vast subject. You touched on it. Uh, before about how long we could actually talk about and you could have multiple volumes on the Bible alone but volume three is interpreting the star myths of the Bible so kind of the ones that stood out to me and I'll let you pick again but um, obviously Adam and Eve and the serpent um, is, is an interesting one because it's where a lot of things start uh, the flood is another one because it's so ubiquitous and every culture and civilization seems to talk about a great flood and then I think people would be quite interested in like to look at the, um, the the New Testament side of apocalyptic visions because everybody loves a good apocalypse, don't they? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's really amazing because, uh, you know, I have to tell the listeners, we didn't discuss this in advance, but I've got written down right here on my, uh, <laughs> on my little sheet of ones that I would touch on Adam and Eve. I've got Revelation 9 written down. <laughs> and I've, I've got Noah... <laughs> Uh, which relates to also those cuneiform tablets that we talked about. So have you got three more hours? No, I'm just <laughs> well, there's a synchronicity <laughs> if ever there was one. Yeah, no, it's amazing that, uh, you know, some of the things that you've brought up are 
you know, I wanted to go to Artemis and there you are already you know, talking <laughs> about some of the, uh, the most important aspects of Artemis. But let's let's dive right in because I'll, I'll try and go fast. Cool. Um, the Bible, of course, is so um, fundamental to what became known as the West. And it's really the Western Roman Empire. And it, I believe it has to do with, you know, all different cultures have these ancient myths that are like their original instructions. And I believe that at some point, the um, in Western culture, what became Western culture, these ancient myths, specifically the ones that are encoded in the Old and New Testament, uh, became used as a a way of cutting us off, actually, from what the actual the ancient myths taught. When the Bible, when the literalist interpretation of the Bible really got going, then it's actually historical. Um, you can go look it up in, you know, even conventional histories show that they shut down the Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece, or they shut down the temple at Delphi, both of those were apparently shut down right around AD 393 or in the AD 390s, right about the time that the Roman Empire had now become literalist uh, version of Christianity became the mandatory interpretation of it. So um, a lot of these ancient uh, understandings are encoded in the Bible, but taking them literally tends to externalize them, tends to physicalize them to where we're talking about, oh, Noah, you know, did he really live as an individual or Adam and Eve? You know, some, some people will be very upset if I say, I believe that Adam and Eve are constellations because there are some people who say, no, wait, Adam and Eve must have been real people because they're referred to, you know, Jesus talks about them. Um, and, and some people will get very upset if, if I say no, it's actually star myths. Yeah. But there's a great there's a great quotation from uh, from Alvin Boyd Kuhn who says that the, the 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 ancient wisdom of the world is a thousand times more precious as myth than as supposed literal history. Uh, but anyway, let's jump into Adam and Eve, and I think maybe maybe listeners who may be resistant to that maybe see what I mean because I'm not trying to undermine belief in the Bible. I believe the Bible is, you know, you can spend uh, years and decades studying it and you'll never run out of the wonderful things that it has to tell you. But I believe we do want to listen to it in the language that it's actually speaking, which is a celestial language, which is a allegorical language. And then once you understand kind of this code that we're talking about, you can maybe ask it, what are you, what are you trying to tell me? Yeah. Because if Adam and Eve are literal people, then um, it's been used in all kinds of ways to say, oh, well, you know, Eve took the fruit first. So therefore, the fall is caused by women. You know, women are the root of all evil. This kind of literalizing turns it on its head. I believe it's actually telling us, hey, we have a divine spark. Everyone comes down from the stars. And you can see this happening with the constellations that represent Adam and Eve right across the night sky. So in that story, there's a serpent, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, there's the creator, God. Um, I believe, and I've made some videos about this, so I'll just kind of quickly lay it out. I believe that in many, many myths where there's a man and a woman, it's very often the woman is Virgo. 
which is a zodiac constellation. Not always, though. We just saw that Artemis could be Sagittarius. There are other constellations that play female figures in myth, but Virgo is a very common one. And Virgo is located in the sky uh, underneath another constellation named Boötes, who's the herdsman. And he's He's pretty high up in the sky. I say underneath from a northern hemispheric perspective. He's very close to the Big Dipper, which circles the North Pole. He's got his long pipe in his mouth. It looks like a pipe. So sometimes an angel playing a trumpet at the last days in the apocalyptic literature may be Boodis. And in fact, Krishna, whom we talked about a lot in the last uh, time I was on alchemy, uh, plays a flute. I believe Krishna, the divine charioteer, is also Boodis. Boodis is kind of a sitting position in the sky, if you look at the H.A. Ray outline of Boodis. So in that story of Adam and Eve, um, Eve reaches out and takes the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But first, she's actually approached by a serpent. And right underneath Virgo, there's this very long, sinuous constellation named Hydra, uh, Hydra is actually looks like a serpent. We know there's a Greek myth where there's a Hydra that has nine heads. I actually believe that's Scorpio. Scorpio is a serpentine figure with multiple heads, sometimes seven, sometimes eight, sometimes nine in different myths, sometimes actually only three. But anyway, Scorpio is probably playing the role of Hydra. So why is, why is this long serpent underneath Virgo named Hydra? I'm not sure. Um, I do talk about it a little bit in volume three at one point. Um, but Hydra, I believe, sneaks up to Eve and whispers in her ear because the serpent is located right next to Virgo and his head is not too far from her head. And then she reaches out and takes the fruit from the tree that Adam and Eve have been told, hey, you can take of any tree of the garden, eat the fruit, but not this one. And she has this outstretched arm. It's actually one of the most distinctive aspects of Virgo uh, that's defined by a star called Vinda Mietrix, which is a Latin word that means the grape plucking uh, star or the, the, uh, that, that R-I-X or T-R-I-X ending. Like um, it's a feminine ending for uh, like actress or uh, waitress in English comes from T-R-I-X in Latin. Anyway, Vinda Mietrix means uh, a feminine fruit plucking hand. So she's reaching out to grab the fruit. That extended arm features in a lot of myths involving Virgo. I won't go too long because we're, we're on a move along. But so I believe that she, that's why Eve is the one who plucks the fruit. I also believe that may have to do with Adam's rib you know, in the story of Genesis, Adam has to fall into a deep sleep and then Eve is made from a rib. Well, right above that extended arm, the extended arm could be the rib being taken out of her side. But right above that, there's a little constellation called Coma Berenices or Berenices hair. And uh, it's a kind of faint constellation, but an important one because there's a lot of myths where a woman's hair is cut off or a woman's hair is stolen. You may be familiar with the Norse myths of Thor. He had this beautiful wife whose hair was made of gold or it was so golden. And Loki, you know, that troublesome yeah. Loki actually comes up with a plan to steal her hair in one, in one myth. 
Um, so anyway, that may also be Adam's rib. If you look at it the way H.A. Ray, so H.A. Ray is absolutely essential to understand, to A, seeing the stars in the sky if you want to go out and look at them, and B, seeing them in the myths. But Berenice's hair may be the rib that's taken out of out of Adam to make uh, Eve. So anyway, I believe Eve is Virgo. I think that we have a lot of clues about that. The serpent is right next to her, and she hands the fruit to Adam. Well, why? Because she's reaching out her arm towards Boötes. It has nothing to do with women being the root of all evil, but if you take it literally, it could be misinterpreted that way. Yeah. Um, and a lot of actually, you know, racist things have been based on the Bible, like, oh, what, what, um, you know, the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, I can show you that those are constellations too, but some... Uh, people down through the centuries have used that to say, oh, Ham was cursed in this story. So anyone descended from Ham, uh, you know, we can, they have to pay for this uh, curse that Noah cursed Ham with. That's totally an inversion of this myth, which actually has to do with, again, uplifting, blessing the divinity in all of us, um, not looking at the uh, external as the whole uh, sum of who a person is, but that's the way it's been twisted. Nobody's descended from the constellation uh, Capricorn or the constellation Sagittarius, um, literally descended, you know, by uh, father to son, to mother to son, <laughs> mother to daughter yeah, generation. Sure. Uh, it's a metaphor. So anyway, back to Adam and Eve, I don't believe that they have any specific race because they're constellations. This is talking about the stars, but they get thrown out of the garden. That represents we ourselves come down from the spiritual realm and we're given coats of skin. After Adam and Eve sin, they're thrown out of the garden and God gives them coats of skin. Uh, to clothe their nakedness, I believe that's actually talking about this aspect of incarnation. When they get thrown out of the garden, first of all, the order that Genesis addresses them, first the serpent gets addressed by God. God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you're going to crawl on your belly all your days and you're going to eat dust. And actually, the constellation Hydra, as the, the sky, you know, the the Earth is actually rotating, but it looks like everything is moving from east to west through the sky mm -hmm. because the earth is rotating towards the east. So the stars, just like the sun, rise in the east, set in the west. So when the Hydra, the constellation, he goes out of the garden first, he's the one who sets first out of these three constellations. And he actually looks like he's eating dust just by the way the constellation is outlined as he's setting on the western horizon. And I show that in the book with some diagrams. So he gets kicked out first, and then Eve gets thrown out second. She gets addressed by God, and, and he says, I'm going to multiply the pain of childbirth, greatly multiply the pain of childbirth. Well, Virgo actually looks like a woman giving birth. She's actually kind of recumbent in the sky. She's got her legs elevated and actually you know, spread apart, just like giving birth. And in a lot of myths, she's giving birth to... Uh, Scorpio in some myths, which Scorpio is kind of a multi-headed figure. So a lot of times, like in the Maui myths, Maui is sometimes described as having eight heads. And his father was so horrified when he was born that uh, he threw baby Maui into the ocean. <laughs> well, that's because 
Virgo can look like she's giving birth to Scorpio. You know, in the revelation, we have uh, a woman who's giving birth to, um, she's waiting to give birth, but a dragon is right there to devour whoever she gives birth to. That's, I believe, Scorpio again. Uh, We can jump to Revelation in a minute, from Genesis to Revelation. But everything in between is also based on the stars. Uh, So anyway, pain and giving birth is multiplied. And then uh, Adam is addressed last. He's going to rotate out of the sky last. And God says, from dust you came, to dust you will return. Well, he rose up out of the eastern horizon. He's going to sink down back into the dust again mm-hmm. when the stars set in the western horizon. Well, what is this talking about? If you understand kind of that code that I was talking about with the, the clock or the watch, where is Virgo located? She's actually located at least in the age of Aries, you know, we could talk about precession of the equinoxes. We don't really have time to get into it. But on that watch dial, she's located at the fall equinox for the northern hemisphere, the the time when darkness starts to take over uh, being longer. Nights become longer than days. That represents our, our, our being banished out of Eden, our own uh, plunge down into this world to toil, you know, in this hard world where we have to work by the sweat of our brow. God says to Adam, you know what? By the sweat of your brow, you're now going to, you used to be able to just walk around the garden and get fruit whenever you wanted it. Now you're going to have to work hard to, to make your daily bread. So we're cast down into this, this incarnate life, but we're supposed to remember, guess what? You also came from the stars. So, uh, that, uh, allegorically speaking, uh, you have a spiritual nature. You actually have access to that spiritual realm at all times. You actually have access to that spiritual realm inside of yourself. That's what some of these disciplines like yoga and meditation and Tai Chi are probably helping us to do. Um, that's what I believe the story is about. And so I believe there really is a garden of Eden. You can really go out tonight and see it. It's up there in the stars, but the stars, it's a great metaphor because they sink down into the earth uh, they they look like they're doing that. I don't believe that the ancients actually thought that the earth was flat. I believe they're using it as a metaphor. And then they plow through the underworld to get back to the eastern horizon, and then they pop back up into the east again. And so that's why you see in the ancient Egypt, you know, going down to death is always in the west, and the Horus sun god always, you know, they're always working towards getting back to the east And it actually has to do not just with the afterlife, it has to do with us down here, what we're supposed to be trying to accomplish in this life, I believe. So that's Adam and Eve. And it brings us on then to Noah and the flood. And one of the interesting points about this and something that just constantly pops into my head is because there's so much speculation about a physical flood, about a physical happening if people study water tables and water marks that are left on ancient archaeological sites, such as the Sphinx and places like that. It does appear that aside from what went on or what goes on up above in a celestial sense, that there was a mirroring of that somewhere on the planet or the earth. So how do we tie these in? Let's talk about the myth first of Noah and the flood and then how it possibly ties into the as below sense. Great. So I am actually someone who has written, you know, my whole first book is about all those markings of the flood. Um, I believe that there's uh, incontrovertible evidence of massive catastrophic 
you know, flooding in ancient times. I believe that the mythical story of the flood that we find in virtually every culture around the world is based on the stars and has spiritual aspects to it because you can find in the Bible account, and it's also the cuneiform tablets of of ancient Mesopotamia, a whole trove of them were uh, uncovered in the library of Ashur Banapal in the 1800s and deciphered kind of for the first time in centuries, as far as we know, in the late 1800s. And in fact, there's this fantastic story about the translator. He was this brilliant student of ancient uh, Assyrian and ancient Sumerian and ancient Akkadian, these ancient languages in cuneiform. And when he first found this tablet that had the biblical flood narrative, well, the the uh, a narrative that was so close to the biblical flood narrative, but in a, a different uh, setting in Mesopotamia with a character named Uta Napishtim or Utnapishtim. And notice that Na in Uta Na Pishtim, that Na is similar to Noah. It's also similar to the name John. So your name, John, you know, there's this figure called Oannes or Oannes, the fish god of Mesopotamia. Are you familiar with O-A-N-N-E-S? Yep. And actually in Ireland, right, there's a lot of people named Owen. Yeah, it's a really common name, yeah, which is also yeah. a derivation of John or derivation the other way around. Derivation of Oannes, yeah, or Juan in, uh, or Ivan. All this is uh, related to, I believe, Aquarius figures. Noah, I believe, is an Aquarius figure. I believe John is an Aquarius figure in a lot of these myths around the world. Noah, Nah. Anyway, <laughs> I was telling a story about the first guy who found this cuneiform tablet. Apparently, he got so distraught, overwhelmed, and excited at the same time that when he started reading this, he started taking his clothes off as he was translating. He just got like hysterical in the library or in the museum where he was translating it and started taking his clothes off and running around the room. And everybody's like, what, what's going on? And he'd found on this tablet, basically the Noah story. It's very close parallels. Anyway, sometimes people do that when they get so distraught, they take their clothes off, I guess. You got to be really distraught. But anyway, um, the Noah story involves um, the the same crossing of the sea, I would argue, that in the Odyssey, he gets thrown down into the sea. He's always being tormented or he's having to deal with Poseidon all the time. Poseidon is like the antagonist in the Odyssey because it's this lower crossing. We go through this lower crossing of uh, the lower, so there's many layers of this metaphor, but the upper realms, you know, we talked about the summer months where light is longer, the lower months where night time is longer. That's what we're in now. We're crossing through this lower realm. The upper realm is also the upper two elements, like fire and air. The lower realm is the lower elements, like earth and water, right? Of the four ancient elements, they're probably spiritual in nature. Um, Alvin Boyd Kuhn talks about this, but we're made up, but we're given a body of clay. Well, which elements make up clay? The lower ones, earth and water. So the flood, I believe, has to do with this lower passage that we're all in 
right now. And actually, at the end of the flood, there's a blessing. God gives a blessing to Noah and says, I will never again destroy the earth with water. Um, There's actually, there's a preacher in the 1800s who became aware of the celestial myths. His name is Robert Taylor. I've got links to his stuff on my website where you can read his very excellent and detailed explication of a lot of myths in the Bible or stories in the Bible connecting him to the stars. He says, well, it's not very nice. God said he's not going to destroy the earth again with water. But then in the New Testament, in Peter, a couple of times, he says he's going to destroy it with fire. So, you know, nice. He said he's not going to destroy it with water, but he's going to destroy it with fire later on. But this is all metaphor. It's all talking about the different turnings of the ages. In fact, the flood is brought on in both the ancient Mesopotamian and the Bible by these sons of God in Genesis. Genesis 6, the sons of God see that the women of earth are beautiful, so they come down and make uh, make wives of the women of earth. And, and this has been interpreted literally by all kinds of different ways. Oh, it's the Anunnaki came down, you know, aliens or something. I believe it's actually has to do with the procession of the equinoxes. It's the same um, metaphor as the Titans of ancient Greece. Hesiod, in his creation epic of, of ancient Greece, or his creation account, talks about the Titans are called that because they overreach their boundaries. The Titans overreach their boundaries. Their name actually means the strivers, the ones who go over their boundaries. And procession causes the the boundaries to shift on the great celestial dial. Anyway, in the in the uh, Mesopotamian story, Mesopotamian account of the flood, it's again there's too many. Uh, the people are overstepping their boundaries. They're they're making too much noise. The gods are getting upset. It all um, then the the flood comes. So I believe the flood has to do with the lower half of the zodiac wheel, and it has to do with dislocation. Uh, procession a lot of times has to do with dislocation. The, the, the wrong constellation has taken over from the right. The, the order of things has been upset. And actually, our own journey through this lower realm has to do with a dislocation. This is not really our home. We're actually spiritual beings, but we're in this weird situation where we've got a human body for some reason probably to elevate our spiritual part. Mm. So I believe that actually the, the whole floodgates of heaven can be shown to be related to a specific constellation. Uh, actually, I believe it's the constellation Hercules. God opens up the floodgates of heaven. He also breaks up the foundations of the great deep. I believe that has to do with the constellation Scorpio. And Hercules and Scorpio often act together. This is kind of complex, but... I won't go fully unpack it. You can check out the books. <laughs> um, but Scorpio and Hercules are um, located along the column of the Milky Way, along that brightest part that I was talking about. Like I said, it rises up between Scorpio and Sagittarius. As you continue up that, you get the beautiful birds of Aquila and Cygnus. Cygnus, C-Y-G-N-U-S, the swan and Aquila, the eagle. They're both flying along the Milky Way. And remember, Noah lets out some different birds that fly to and fro to after the flood so he can find out, hey, did 
<laughs> did the flood abate enough for for me to get out of this ark? Um, uh, in the Mesopotamian accounts as well, Uta Napishtim, he actually describes the flood to Gilgamesh and says, yeah, I let out these different birds. One was a sparrow in that account, but one was a dove, just like Noah let out a dove. Yeah. Um, so all these things can be seen in the heavens. And actually, at the end of the Uta Napishtim story, he says, after that, the, a God came to me and my wife and brought me to a different place and said, now you will be as the gods. So it's almost like we go through the flood in order to reconnect with our higher self in some way. That's part of what we're doing down here in this difficult crossing. We're like Odysseus crossing this long, arduous journey. We're like Noah crossing the flood or Uta Napishtim. And, um, and at the end, there's a restoration. There's a, a re, uh, we've been cast down into this realm, but we will, uh, we, we will uh, attain this victory that, like I mentioned in our last uh, Krishna and Arjun, Arjun is worried about going into this great battle of Kurukshetra, which I believe is also that zodiac wheel again. But Krishna says, hey, let's call on the goddess Durga before the battle. And she appears and she says to Krishna, don't worry, victory is already assured for you. So it's like when we come down into this life, we may feel like uh, this was a failure, but actually victory is somehow, somehow going through this, we're going to eventually, maybe, maybe it takes multiple lifetimes, but we will eventually uh, get to that place that we're supposed to get to. At least that's what the myths seem to be telling us. Yeah. And will we eventually get then to the apocalyptic visions or revelation or the great unveiling? What's going to happen there? Yeah. So, um, you know, once again, I believe that this is based on the stars. I believe it actually has a lot of processional imagery in the apocalypse. Um, it was actually one of the first, um, parts of the Bible that I found that really caused me to go, wait a minute, these, these authors of Hamlet's mill are talking about all these myths being based on the stars. And every now and then they would talk about a biblical passage being based on the stars mm. and they, the first one that they talked about that really started to resonate with me was the story of Samson, which I've talked about before, and I've actually got some videos. People can find this on the website. There's a video section talking about Samson. That was one of the first ones. The second one was Revelation chapter 9, which is, I believe, the fifth trumpet. But in Revelation, what I'd like to say is this apocalyptic literature is using the same constellations, but it's almost like if you'll forgive this metaphor, freebasing them. Yeah, I guess <laughs> It's you. like taking them in even more pure. It's almost like the metaphors are not dressed up in a way that is going to make much sense to us. Like in the Adam and Eve story or in the story of Odysseus, we can all relate to Odysseus, you know? I mean, even though it's an, a, an adventure, it's like, yeah, oh, that could happen. He could, he could uh, be on that raft that runs aground on the island or whatever. Uh, it's been put into a way that is much more understandable for us. But in apocalyptic type literature, and there's lots of revelation texts from the ancient times that have now been uncovered, the one that made it into the Bible that was judged safe enough to put into the Bible is the revelation of John again. Um, so there's that same name that relates to Noah. Yeah. Um, but 
in apocalyptic literature, what we have is basically they won't, the, it's the same system being used, but they won't strive to make it very understandable. And so it's like you're seeing the, the symbols in their purest form. So we've got a, a sword coming out of the mouth of God and he's got this, or of Jesus, and he's, he's got the, or this figure that, uh, you know, that says, I am the alpha and the omega to John. Well, Alpha and Omega, I am the first and the last. These are actually celestial references. The Zodiac Wheel has a sign that is first, uh, that's also last. Mm. It, it, a, a circle, you know, and procession actually, what it does is it makes the sign that was first, or no, sorry, that was last, suddenly become first. Like in the age of Aries, Aries is the first sign that rises at it's all based off the spring equinox, but Aries is the, the sun is in the house of Aries during the spring equinox point during the age of Aries. And so the next sign would be Taurus and then Gemini and on and around we go all the way to Pisces would be the, the last sign in the age of Aries. But then procession actually shifts us to the preceding sign, precession, preceding sign to the sign before Aries is Pisces, and that was the last sign. But as procession shifts everything, we go into the age of Pisces. And so a lot of Old Testament literature uses Aries or ram uh, ram symbolism. We got ram's horns. We've got um, uh, uh, Moses smashes the Ten Commandments when he sees his brother Aaron has set up a bull because the age of Taurus was before the age of Aries. So Moses gets very angry when he says, when, when his brother's proclaiming Taurus as being, or the bull as the gods that led them up out of Egypt. So Taurus doesn't lead you up out of Egypt anymore. In the age of Aries, it shifts to Aries, becomes the first sign. And then we have the fish imagery a lot in the New Testament, the fishers of men, Pisces, Piscean imagery. And then after that, so in the age of Pisces, Aquarius would be the last sign, but then we have another shift. The last shall be first. So there's a lot of this um, type of celestial language encoded right in the Bible. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega in the apocalyptic literature, there's all that, or this figure, this divine figure that has all these Describu- uh, descriptions and attributes that are basically straight out of the constellations with very little modification. So it's almost like uh, you can have it more watered down with more uh, human anthropomorphizing of it, or we can just give it to you straight and we're going to have an angel stepping on the head of, you know, or blowing this horn and has one foot in the ocean and one foot on dry land. What's that all about? Well, it's the constellation Ophiuchus who has his right foot in the Milky Way. Yeah. And in Revelation 10, there's an angel that has his one foot in the ocean and one foot on dry land. And that's Ophiuchus. And Ophiuchus is a serpent handler and he has on one side the serpent head. And John is told, hey, you have to eat this book. And that's actually, I talk about it in Star Myths, Volume 3. I believe it's the head of the serpent, but sometimes it's envisioned as a little book. Well, we don't normally eat books, you know, so this is apocalyptic literature. It's, it's like more, a little more bizarre, but it's still based on the same constellations. And actually, 
you can think of it as a metaphor also. Well, eating the book, well, we have to really chew on these myths to get to their, you really want to, uh, you really have to soak in them. But if you approach them and listen to them in the language that they're speaking, then they will tell you what they're talking about. But if you literalize them, literalize yeah. them, then you can think it's all about the end of the world and we're going to, oh my goodness, we're getting close to the end times. And uh, um, so in Revelation 9, I, w- I was beginning to talk about it. There's a, a the seal, the, the fifth seal, I believe. Uh, I, I don't have the text right in front of me, but the, the, the bottomless pit is opened up and this smoke from the bottomless pit starts to rise up out of the bottomless pit. Well, if you're familiar with, if you've read enough of star myths of the world, you'll know that smoke rising up out of the pit could be, we've mentioned it already, that Milky Way galaxy. And in the summer months here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's summer, in the June, July timeframe, you've got Scorpio and Sagittarius dominant in the sky. Right now, here we are in December, we've got Orion uh, dominant in the sky. Beautiful, now he's up by 9 p.m. But in the summer months, Scorpio and Sagittarius are on either side of this brilliant, smoky, milky way. And that's the that's the smoke that's rising up from the bottomless pit. And in Revelation 9, it talks about, uh, and then I saw... Uh, these scorpion figures with, with, well, they had the tails of scorpions and they were, well, that's Scorpio. And they also had crowns on their head. Well, the Southern crown is right there in between Scorpio and Sagittarius. And they had long hair. Sagittarius figures often have long hair Mm. like Apollo. Apollo, I believe is also a Sagittarius figure, just like his sister, Artemis. Artemis and Apollo are both basically twins. They're both archers. They're both Sagittarius. Apollo often has long hair, usually no beard. Um, Hercules is a a constellation that has a square head. Usually those figures have a big square beard like Zeus, Hercules himself. Actually, sometimes it's female figures as well, like the Gorgons. Medusa, I believe, is actually a Hercules figure, Medusa and her sisters. And in ancient Greek pottery, sometimes they have Obviously, they have snakes coming out of their heads, but in some of the ancient depictions, it almost looks like a square beard uh, composed of serpents. So I believe that's Hercules, a different constellation. But anyway, in that Revelation 9, excuse me, Revelation 9 passage, there are many, many references to that particular point on the zodiac, you know, uh, during the year where we have Sagittarius, Scorpio, the Southern Crown, the brilliant part of the the Milky Way. There's actually a constellation called the Altar, Ara, the Altar, which is kind of below the horizon in most of the northern latitudes. But there's an altar mentioned in that um, in that passage as well. So there's many clues in the text pointing to that. But if we take them literally, it's almost like we're uh, miss. We're using the wrong language to listen to what they're trying to tell us. I believe they're trying to tell us beautiful truths, but they can be used to scare you and get you to do stuff uh, that that uh, they can be twisted. And I believe that's what, in uh, sadly, in many cases has happened. Yeah, and even the bastardization of the term apocalypse in itself. I mean, apocalypse means the unveiling, which doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing or a bad thing. But in common parlance, it seems to be associated now with something like 
the battle of Armageddon and nuclear war and all this kind of stuff you know it's, it's all this negative connotation which isn't the case at all really is it right no that's an excellent point so revelation and apocalypse both mean the same thing one is latinate reveal unveil and one is greek apocalyptos uh but they both have to do with an unveiling uh, a revealing of gnosis or knowledge mm. um and also, you know, that same passage I was talking about, Revelation 9, these figures uh, riding around with scorpion tails has sometimes been interpreted as, oh, that must be, you know, Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, the, yeah. uh, the ancient prophet was seeing into the future and he saw this great battle. And, um, you know, it's actually quite uh, a bad thing if you have world leaders taking this text literally and thinking, hey, we must be getting close to the apocalypse. I guess it's okay if we start this great battle of Armageddon because uh, all the uh, signs are pointing to the end times. No, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not literal. You know, in the, in the uh, Norse myths, there's Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, and all these, uh, you know, Thor is eaten by the Midgard serpent and Odin is devoured by Fenris Wolf. These are all constellations. Um, but at the end of that, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Just like in the book of Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new, it, it's, it's actually procession creates a new order, a new cycle of the heavens. There's a new sign at the equinox spring equinox a new sign at the summer solstice so the 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 clock has shifted but we get a new cycle so there's all these uh myths where you know aries the ram replaces taurus the bull but it's not the end of the world it's the end of a cycle and what we're so these as above, so below, we're lining ourselves up with the cycles of the heavens when we celebrate our birthday or observe uh, Christmas or uh, Durga Day in India um, that is celebrated in October, in the fall, the, the, the fall equinox time. We, we observe all these different cycles. There's cycles of the moon, the lunar month. There's cycles of the year, the annual cycle. And there's this vast cycle of procession which uh, like moves one degree every 72 years. So there's all these processional numbers that are multiples of 72, like 216, 432. Mm. You can go to like Barassus was this ancient uh, historian who actually wrote about Oannes. Um, he talks about, he has this king list. And if you add up the lengths of the reigns of all the kings on the king list of Barassus, it's 432,000 years. Well, that's a processional number. 72 is one degree of procession is 72 years. So 108 is one and a half degrees. That's a very significant number. I think there's 108 beads in the rosary. There's Tai Chi, um, has a long form with 108 moves. So if you're doing the Tai Chi grand celestial long form with 108 parts to it, you're lining yourself, you're, you're imitating down here below yeah. in your very motions, the processional number of 108, the, the wooden dummy that you may have seen that, you know, Bruce Lee uses the wooden dummy has a hundred, it's called the 108 wooden man. Um, 
and actually in the, the, the list of the patriarchs before the flood, if you add up all their ages and times, it actually comes to 1,656 years, which if you multiply that out into days, it's 604,841 days. And then you divide that into weeks, it actually comes to 86,000 405 weeks, which if we round it to 86, 400, that's 864 is another processional number. It's 108 turns into 216, turns into 432, turns into 864. Yeah. So they're putting these processional, uh, and actually Odysseus, he's trying to get back home where there's these suitors who are, they're outside of their boundaries too. They're in his house eating up all his provisions and trying to court his wife to marry them instead of Odysseus. And they, and they actually put together a plot to kill Odysseus's son as well. Well, how many suitors are there? Well, if you add up the number of suitors that are given in the, I think the 20th book of the Odyssey, uh, it might not be the right book, but anyway, in the Odyssey, there's a list of all the suitors. Well, there's 10 from this town, 10 from this town, 20 from this town. It adds up to 108 which is a processional number. So these apocalyptic end of the world, new heaven, new earth, I believe can be shown to have to do with procession and the great cycles of the heavens. It doesn't mean that we all have to be worried that the world's going to end in 2012 or 2030 or whatever someone tells us. Yeah. I find it absolutely fascinating, David, because it's it's like we've got this... Um this archetypal code that we can use to, I suppose, elevate ourselves to another plane, which many of us think that we are here to do in the first place. And if we follow the blueprint or the code, well, that's exactly where we're going to end up. But it also warns us as to the consequences of going against natural law or whatever other term people want to put on that, God's law, go against the code. And I think as above, so below is the term that ties everything together because we can see everything mirrored or replicated down here from that pictorial description in the stars if we care to look. And of course, if we apply H.A. Ray's model rather than the, the, the kind of semi-obliterated model that we are brought up with. Yeah, no, great point. I didn't want to gloss over or... Uh contradict your point about natural law earlier. I think absolutely the the key part of natural law is don't harm others. Mm. You know, be good to others, be good to yourself. Don't do violence to others. And someone might say, well, if this whole world is a, uh, uh, just a, uh, what's that word, hologram, yeah. or if we're, you know, if we all have multiple reincarnations, then hey, maybe it's not a big deal. Why, why should we have to worry about uh, what if I do violence to others? Well, first of all, because they have, they're infinitely valuable. Mm. Um, they're, they have the same divine spark in them as you do. Second of all, you're supposed to be uh, raising up that spiritual part, not objectifying. When you uh, harm someone else or objectify someone else, you actually end up objectifying yourself. There's a famous poem, uh, not poem, there's a famous uh, essay written by Simona Wheel during World War II where she talks about the Iliad as the, the poem of force. And she says uh, it shows objectification and turning people, in, when, you, when you do violence to someone else, you turn them into an object. Uh, and if you kill them, they, they become you know, literally an object with no 
now to become, you know, inert matter. Yeah. Well, when you do that, it actually turns you into an object. You end up becoming the very thing. If you objectify women, you will, uh, you will become a caricature yourself. Uh, you, you know, you, uh, so when, uh, you know, we, we, we all do it, or at least I'm certainly guilty of it. When someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm, of course, uh, without even thinking, tempted to say something bad about them or that person and call them a name. Yeah. But actually, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, when I think of people that way, when I objectify people, I'm actually in some way potentially object, turning myself more into an object, which is the we're supposed to be trying to overcome that down here. So somehow we're supposed to be trying to transcend that. So we violations of natural law bounce back on yourself. You know, when you, when when we as a culture violate them, we think, Oh, I'm going to get more resources by taking them from someone else. You actually impoverish yourself somehow. Um, So I think that that point about natural law is absolutely central God's law, universal law, and it, and it absolutely means not harming others. So what's next then? I mean, you've three of the books out. We've discussed that you could have another 43 books. Um, <laughs> is the next one in the works or what's up? Yeah, so I really do. Uh, I'm taking a little break right now, having uh, had these out in pretty rapid succession. I was really kind of obsessed or, or motivated to get the star miss of the Bible um, but I do have the intention to go to the Norse myths, uh, the Beowulf story, which is, um, one that I really, uh, really in love with. I wrote my master's thesis uh, in literature, primarily based on old English literature and Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, I'd like to go back and actually revisit volume one talks about myths of ancient India, ancient Japan, ancient China, uh, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, uh, North America, the Pacific Islands. But that one was almost like a a quick survey because I was uh, dealing with so many and also I was trying to bring the reader in uh, slowly. Uh, You could actually read them all. You could read volume three, then volume two, volume one, if you want to. Yeah. Uh, doesn't matter. But I would like to go back, you know, it'd be great to go back to ancient India and just unpack more of those myths. Cause I only dealt with a couple important ones, Bhagavad Gita and, mm-hmm. you know, Arjun and Krishna, but there's so much more. You could do a whole volume on ancient India, a whole volume on ancient China, obviously multiple volumes on any of those. But, um, so I, w- I would like to continue to delve into it to try and really show that this is going on. I mean, now I've got hundreds of pages of evidence. I believe it's pretty, I'm convinced that this is, that all the myths of the world are based on this ancient system. And um, so that's one thing. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that I'd like to write. Of course, you know, it's, it's, it's like, like anybody, there's so many things. Once we find what is really exciting, and maybe you don't find that till you're 30 or 40 years old. Yeah. But then you go, oh man, I would, I would love what, what wouldn't I want to, to explore in this, in this realm? And you know, I, I wouldn't mind getting into writing some fiction too. But that takes some, you know, it takes the help of the muse. 
<laughs> the, the, you need divine inspiration to help you with that. Well, I think you uh, could, if you decided to go down the route of fiction, you could come up with some really good allegorical fiction. I'd very much look forward to that, I must say. <laughs> I'd love to do it. And also the, the myths of Ireland, the, the sacred traditions of ancient Ireland are... I'm not super familiar with them. I know you are, but... Uh, yeah, which scandalously are not thought properly to... Well, I mean, hardly surprisingly, really, are not taught properly to Irish kids growing up. It's amazing. Well, yeah, it's amazing in one sense, except, except that you see that basically the, the taking of these stories literally in the Bible was then used to go around and, and, and tragically stamp out mm. kind of the, uh, you know, the, the ancient wisdom everywhere that it was found you know when when the conquistadors came over to central america they promptly gathered up all the ancient maya texts and had a huge bonfire you know when graham hancock writes about that in fingerprint of the gods uh you know tears start coming down your face when you're reading it it's like why well let's just hope we don't have the same thing with amazon and the digitization of literature (laughs) you know (laughs) but that's Uh, another story entirely well, these things are super important. Obviously, the 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 these stories are tied. These these are for our benefit, and they're for our uplifting, and they actually tie into. You know, I've used the metaphor of Mr. Miyagi and teaching Daniel San with yeah. his esoteric. It's like kung fu. All uh, these these are like the manuals that can accompany your practice in Taoist meditation. These are like the manuals that can help shed more light on your, whatever you're doing in Kung Fu or in yoga. Uh, if you understand them, I believe it's ancient wisdom that was given to humanity as a precious inheritance that we want to, uh, that we really want to preserve and understand. And so, uh, I just, I think it's really, profitable to dive deep into the odyssey and that can be your bible or the iliad or the myths of ancient Mm. uh ireland or the bible uh if you start to understand the language that they're really trying to convey their message in I totally agree. And for those that might like to start to understand that language, you articulate it extremely well in the books and in the interviews, of course, and the videos that you do. So tell us about the website and how people can get their hands on the information. Thanks, John, for that that compliment. Uh, the, I, I appreciate it very much. The website is called starmythworld.com. That's actually a new site that I've put up since our last interview. Yep. It, uh, you can search for my name and find any of my previous sites as well. They're all still, they have pointers to the new one. The new one has all the content from the old ones, but I keep the original blog running as well. It's over 900 entries. You can get to that blog on Star Myth World or just by searching for my last name and the word stars. And then Star Myth World, obviously there's a menu at the top where you've got, uh, you can get to the blog, you can get to the myths. So I I outline like, 39 different myths there on Star Myth World that you can click on and read about. I've got the blog obviously talks about various myths and other topics as well. Uh, There's a section there called books. And if you click on books, you can get to sample content of each of the books just by clicking on any of the covers that I have pictured there on the books section of the blog. And then down at the bottom, there's places where you can order the books. Obviously, they're a 
any of your local bookstores should be able to get it for you. It's distributed by, all the books are distributed by Ingram, which is one of the biggest distributors. So any bookstore can get it. Any library can get it for you. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, or you can get it on Barnes & Noble. Strangely enough, uh, Volume 3 has been like unavailable on Amazon. It's like out of stock for the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure what's going on there, but you can get it on Barnes & Noble and have it in a couple of days. And in fact, there's if you scroll down, there's a link there to, uh, if you want to order signed copies, uh, I, I can send those out um, to you. Of course, in that case, you can have to pay for the shipping. And internationally, that's trickier, but yeah. just contact me if you <laughs> if you really, really want to pay that shipping. Like I said, these books have 766 pages, 718 pages, 500 and some odd, 540 some pages. So they're heavy. <laughs> it's like costs more to ship it to Australia than it does to buy the book. So you might want to just order it. But um, but there's lots of places to get them. And there's lots of free content that you can just read on the blog, on the website, or uh, or just order it, go to your college library and say, hey, why don't you order this for me so I don't have to pay for it? Then you can read it, other <laughs> people can read it, and you can read it that way. Exactly. Well, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. David Madsen, it's been another literally and metaphorically transcendental conversation for me, and I really appreciate your time. So thank you very much for joining me once again on Alchemy. I'm looking forward to having another one in the very near future. Thank you so much, John. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on the donations and it all helps. So every little bit, even the price of a cup of coffee every month would go a long way towards keeping us afloat and increasing our output. The donate button is on the website and all support and assistance is very much appreciated. And thank you once again to those who have donated recently. Until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power.